And uh, there it is. I'd invite you to stand, but you've already been standing. So let's just uh, share in this prayer together. And then uh, I'll continue uh, right after that a little longer. And then we'll look at the word. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Dear God, we thank you so much for the prayer that you taught your disciples to pray. And as we count ourselves among those followers of Jesus today, we recognize that this prayer is also for us. We come before you in worship, recognizing you as our Father. You are our Father twice, for you gave us birth in the first place. But then, having come to know of Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins, opening our hearts, believing in him, you have given us new birth. So we thank you so much for what it means that we are in your family, that you are a father, that you care deeply about each of us. Thank you, Father, for um, making yourself known to us through your son. Father, this morning, We recognize the greatness and majesty of your name. It is hallowed. It is holy. And we acknowledge this morning the significance of this word that you are completely removed from sin, that you are apart from your creation, that you are over all of it, that... um, you are, are transcendent, that you live in the heavens and are far above all, and yet you have made yourself known to us in your Son, Jesus. We worship you this morning for the greatness of your name. We thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for the fact that you are building your kingdom. And this morning we commit ourselves together to join with you in the in the uh, completion of your kingdom work. We pray that your kingdom may come to this world. We long for the day when your kingdom will be established here in this world. We want your will to be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Oh God, what a difference this would make. So we look forward to that day which you have promised is coming, when you will come back and reign in righteousness and truth. We thank you so much for this promise. We thank you for your care for us. Despite the fact that this hasn't happened yet, you are gracious. You look after our needs, and we just thank you this morning for your provision. We thank you for this beautiful world that you've made. Thank you for where you have called us to live in, in it. Thank you for the, the um, ways that you uh, caused the, the earth to bring forth food for our, our daily sustenance. Thank you for how you provide work for us so that we can uh, share in these good things. We give you thanks for all these things. 
This morning, Lord, <clears throat> we, uh, we confess that um, we have sinned. We often uh, are reminded of the fact that we have shortcomings, and we have lots of them. We sin by uh, our intentional disobedience at times. We sin by not acknowledging what we are to do or missing out or not remembering what you have asked us to do. We pray for your forgiveness this morning in our hearts. You know our need. We humbly bow before you and ask for your forgiveness. And Father, we pray that you would enable us because of this forgiveness and the assurance of it to extend that same forgiveness to those around us who have offended against us. Lord, we all experience this in one way or another. And we pray that you would help us to bless those that uh, curse us or that are mean to us. Help us to uh, pray for them, for those who despitefully use us. So, Lord, we just ask for your mercy in this way. And this morning, Lord, <clears throat> uh, we just uh, pray that uh, you would enable us to be victorious over temptation and trial as it comes in our lives. Uh, the enemy is at work, and we are conscious of this so often. We are mindful of the fact that there are many things going on that are contrary to your will. And uh, we just pray that you would give us victory uh, over the tempter and over trial and temptation as it occurs in our lives. We pray, O oh God, for, for those who are struggling today because of <clears throat> things that have risen in their lives. We pray that you would give them a sense of your mercy and grace, and we pray that you would uh, help them to trust you in the midst of whatever trial they're facing, whatever loss they've experienced, to know your presence and your peace. So we, we pray all of these things this morning. You know those who are gathered here in this place in the trials that they face, and we just ask for for your intervention. Some are trusting you for health and strength. Some are trusting you for, for uh, your peace in the, in the midst of loss and perhaps even bereavement. And so, Lord, we just, we just need you so much. We bow humbly before you today and ask for your mercy and grace. Father, <clears throat> you are the mighty God. Look forward to that day when your kingdom will be established and we enter into this kingdom work with you. However you have called us to do that, in the giving of our gifts to your service, in the giving of our talents, our spiritual gifts for your service. We pray for those who minister abroad today in the work of your kingdom and just ask that you would you would uphold them and strengthen them where they are. Thank you for those represented um, by this congregation who are serving you. We just commit them to you today. Thank you for your word. Lord, your word sustains us. We pray that you would minister to us in a special way today through these passages that we're looking at briefly. And uh, we pray today uh, also for those young people who are gathered at the camp the junior high um, conference. We just pray your blessing on those who lead them as well. And that these young people would, would experience you in a very special way. 
that they would know what you've done for them and open their lives to you and serve you all their days. So we ask all of these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a great weekend already in so many ways. I've had the privilege of spending time with uh, the elders yesterday, and um, we uh, got to know each other a little bit better, and uh, just tried to think about what our focus should be during these transition days, and review that a little bit. We um, want to uh, ensure that we are reaching out to anybody in the church who has a need, and those perhaps who were part of the church who weren't, we want to touch base with them. We want to ensure that the ministries of the church are going forward and are well-led and uh, that they are well-defined as to what they should be doing. And um, we want to see that the vision and mission of the church is carried forward. And we want to look at some organizational matters in the life of the church that uh, could perhaps make it more effective and efficient in how it operates. Those are some of the things we consider as priorities. But most of all, uh, you know, is the priority of prayer and uh, really um, engaging everyone in a, in a time of, of prayer for, for the church. And I hope we can do that in a variety of ways, including what is happening on uh, Monday nights. Uh, one of the issues that is of great importance in the life of the church, of course, which you'll recognize and identify with immediately, is how we relate to one another. That is our love relationship and care for one another, a sense of unity, our appreciation for the fact that this really is a family and all that that means. So February, of course, has its uh, distinctive uh, celebration in uh, Valentine's, and probably you're thinking about that already as to what you're going to do for someone that you love. But uh, I thought, well, uh, I think it's timely and appropriate that we should talk about love uh, in uh, and among us here in the church. So I have a couple of messages uh, that I've often referred to uh, in the past uh, along this line, and one has to do with uh, romantic love, and the other has to do with the importance of forgiveness, which I'll bring to you when I come back later in, in this month. It's unfortunate that my wife isn't here uh, this weekend because I want to speak briefly about love in the context of the marriage relationship, and I think if she was here, she would agree that the uh, older uh, it grows, the better it goes. We've worked uh, through some hard things over the years, but in the end, we look at each other and we smile and we think, well, God, you've sure been good to us. We can't believe how how blessed we've been through the love that you've given us and for the blessings that have come because of that. So I want to speak to you today about the importance of romantic love. And in in a way, it's a bit of a follow-up to last week's message that uh, Pastor Brett brought on the subject of joy, because, uh, you know, love and joy go together. If there's no love, there's no joy. Uh, And if there's no joy, uh, you know, often there's no love as well. They go hand in hand, so to speak. So I have a reference here from the Song of Solomon, of all places, that I want to begin with. And uh, if we can move this thing forward, uh, we'll, uh, let's see, I think I know the secret. There, talk to you about Valentine's Day. Uh, Song of Solomon 2, 1 to 7. Let me read this for you. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. 
Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so deserves. Well, we could go on and on <laughs> to see this wonderful poetry concerning a love relationship <clears throat> here um, between these uh, lovers. Regardless uh, of where you are in life, if you are a young adult, or you've been one, or you've had one, uh, I'm sure you all know something of what it means to experience that heartthrob when someone of the opposite sex attracts your attention for the first time. And uh, for me, uh, this first happened, I think, when I was in grade five, and I... uh, (laughs) I saw a red-haired girl in my class, and like Charlie Brown, I had this heart flutter at the sight of her. Uh, But that was uh, nothing compared to what happened about 10 years uh, later when uh, uh, I first saw the lady who became my wife. Uh, Many of you will know what that's like when you first experience that for the first time. For me, it happened when I was a college student at Canadian Bible College in Regina. And she wasn't a student, but she used to hang around there. And then we both ended up in a college and career or young adult group of the church. And we were both at university for a while together. And uh, something happened during that time that made me think, well, you know, what's going on here? But, you know, I'm a disciplined person. I want to study, so I don't want to pay too much attention to that because I was influenced by the navigators. Peter and Cheryl will know something about that. The navigators have an emphasis on military kind of discipline. And uh, that was my experience. I thought, uh. But God seemed to say, ah, I have a gift for you. Do you want to take it? And uh, I began to see the picture, and he showed me through Scripture, actually, that uh, this could be a good thing. <clears throat> So uh, we started to date. My, our first date was a, a student drama at the Bible College that had been uh, presented the year before at Valentine's, and it was called How to Give Away a Heart, First Date. Uh, and that's what happened. We dated that year, got engaged, dated for another year, and the rest, as they say, is history. Part of the reason God made us male and female, according to Genesis 1, was to enable us to experience the ecstasy of romantic love. I know some would be very pragmatic and would talk about companionship and domestic care for one another and all of that. But the truth is that all relationships that lead to mutual desire for marriage begin with that inevitable and indescribable feeling that we call romantic love. You can call it Cupid Cupid, or the normal hormonal activity of puberty, but there comes a time when something stirs within and we are stricken with attraction. And it is an attraction that often eclipses more practical considerations like 
the importance of preparing for a career or having to get to, having to get used to people who will become in-laws or actually having to share one's space with somebody else. And we soon discover that love is, a, is about a lot more than mere romantic appeal. I'm not going to preach uh, specifically from Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon today uh, per se, but in reading through these two books that are some of my favorites in the, in the scriptures, I've been deeply impressed with how much they have to say about romance and the reality of this very special relationship called marriage. Scriptures say, In Ecclesiastes, live happily with the woman you love. The wife God gives you is your reward for all your earthly toil. Song of Songs is especially beautiful. And as you know, it has images and descriptions of romantic love that are so graphic, so detailed, that it would be a little difficult to read them in a public service like this without feeling some embarrassment, yet it is clear that this is the beauty that God intended for marriage. This is the dream that is rightfully reflected in our beautiful wedding ceremonies. But in actual fact, we all know that it doesn't always uh, appear or work out in the way that the ceremony implies. We all know or have stories of pain associated with marriage. And there are jokes about it. Uh, Nikki Gumbel of Alpha fame uh, has this story about two people who were married and who argued all the time. They uh, just... uh, argued every, everywhere and, and comp- continually, and, but they managed to stay together. Uh, but they arrived at their 50th wedding anniversary, and they were still arguing, and their children were so concerned that they gave them a gift to go see a counselor. This is Nikki's story. And they, so, so they took up this gift, and they went to the counselor, And they argued on the way to the counselor, and they argued in the presence of the counselor, and the counselor was so exasperated exasperated (laughs) by this experience that he went over to the woman, and he gave her a big kiss. And he said, this is what this woman needs at least three times a week. And her husband said, I'll bring her on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. There are lots of jokes about marriage. What was lost in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God is very real in our lives. And nothing shows us this reality like marriage and the close relationships that we have. In fact, I've often said that there's nothing like marriage and having children that really, really Uh, gives the opportunity for sanctification to be developed in our lives if we cooperate with that process. I know there are many variables, but at the very core of our beings, it is the reality of sin that quenches 
the beautiful flame of romance that God intended for us. But the really good news is that God in Christ has made it possible for his ideal for marriage to be restored. There's nothing like a Christian marriage for that reason. Now, it isn't that, you know, Christians don't have difficulties, but Jesus provides the foundation for a wonderful relationship in marriage. Certainly, for us, even though we were Christians, there were times of testing. Carolyn and I know about that. We married as Christians, yet especially in the early years of our marriage, we struggled at times to know God's grace in our lives. There have been times, I'm sure, when the romance of our first love has grown weak. And when that happens, other things happen as well. And I think we've grown wiser over the years in seeing the importance of romantic love. As a pastor, I've had the privilege of working with all kinds of couples to help them prepare for marriage or to help them through marriage difficulties. I often uh, used to recommend a little book in marriage called Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts by Les and Leslie Parrott. And in it, these authors refer to a marriage researcher by the name of Robert Sternberg, who in 1986 developed what he has come to be called the triangular theory of love. And in this theory, he proposed that love is like an equilateral triangle, having three important points, passion, which is sort of the motivational aspect of love, intimacy, which is the emotional or soulmate quality of love, and commitment, which is the rational part, the part that provides a strong sense of security and certainty in the marriage. And in combination, these three provide what he calls the three sides of love. And too often, though the three sides of love are not balanced, and then he says we get into difficulty. So uh, we have such a thing as a romantic love that is a combination of intimacy and passion, but it lacks a very real sense of commitment. And this might be what characterizes relationships, for example, that have not been formalized in marriage. By the way, what distinguishes marriage, as opposed to what we often refer to as common law relationships, I believe is the public expression of commitment in the vows that we Make that are made to one another. Marriage is very much a biblical concept understood as a covenant that is made between partners and that is valid because it is witnessed by others. That's what makes marriage, the marriage ceremony, so unique. Then there is this other kind of uh, love that he calls foolish love or fatuous love. It's a combination of passion and commitment without really knowing the person. It lacks intimacy. This would probably characterize a lot of engagement relationships or early marriage relationships. Sometimes it could be spoken of as kind of puppy love, maybe. Then there's something that he calls companionable love, which is a combination of intimacy and commitment, but it lacks passion. In other words, 
There is no romance in the relationship, no spark, no excitement. And I guess that's what you would call a platonic marriage or a tired marriage. And that can be dangerous too because Satan can capitalize on the opportunity to kindle that spark somewhere else. So what Steinberg theorizes here is that what is needed in marriage is what he calls a consummate love, which is a balance between the three sides of love. So he speaks about the fact that the dance of love seeks to keep these three in balance. And I, I think that Steinberg is onto something here because this is the kind of marriage relationship that God has in mind for us. And that is what true love is really all about, involving commitment, intimacy, and passion. And I believe that this has an application to our relationship with Christ as well. Marriage is a blessing that, uh, that God has intended for, his, for humanity, but it is not to be regarded as an end in itself. Not everyone has been called to marry. There is more to life than marriage. But marriage does illustrate something of what God intends in our relationship with him. Speaking of marriage in Ephesians 5, Paul writes that it is a profound mystery. But he makes it clear that he is speaking here of the relationship between Christ and his church. And in Revelation 21, verse 2, he speaks of the church, or uh, uh, the writer, John, we believe, speaks of the church as the bride of Christ. So it's legitimate for us to think and talk about our relationship to Christ in the same way that we think and talk about marriage, having passion, having intimacy, and, of course, involving commitment. You know, eventually in this transition time, uh, we hope to enter into an assessment time in the life of the church. And we will have meetings, some of my meetings with you even these days uh, are an opportunity for me to learn about the church. Maybe we'll do a survey of the, of the entire congregation. But in this process, the real question that we're seeking to discern is what does God think? What does he see? Because that's the real issue, isn't it? As you probably know, there's an interesting description in Revelation chapter 2 along this line uh, concerning the churches that are in the region that is today uh, really a part of Turkey. The Apostle John had a vision of Jesus standing among the churches there and uh, he is doing a review of their spiritual health. And uh, the reason I mentioned this is in particular is because of what he says about the church in Ephesus. For we read these words in Revelation 2 there concerning this. The angel of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus I write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, And walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wickedness or wicked people. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And have found them false. 
You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Jesus has words of commendation, but also of concern for this church. He says that it is hardworking, persevering, and discerning, and even hateful of the practices of the Nicolaitans. Something also hateful to the Lord himself. Now, it's hard to know exactly what this is all about, but it appears to be the mixing of pure Christian faith with pagan practice. Much as had happened in the Old Testament under the influence of Balaam, which we read about in Numbers 22 to 24. And uh, in that particular case... um, uh, he was uh, seeking to influence the Israelites in the ways of the Moabite religion. In Revelation 2.14, we read that this man brought trouble upon Israel by encouraging, in the end it seems to be Moabites, to entice Israel into idolatrous worship through sexual seduction. Another church at Pergamum, Pergamum had indulged this way, but this was not the case with the Ephesians, so that was good. But the one thing that wasn't good is that they had forsaken their first love, as it says in verse 4. And isn't it interesting, in the midst of all the good things that there is there, there's this very serious negative thing. And the question of what did Jesus mean by this? Well, I think it was the kind of thing we're talking about here this morning when we speak of young love or or romantic love, that passionate, free spirit of love that characterizes initial attraction. So here's a church. They were going through the motions of faith, but were not making Jesus the number one love and priority of their lives. They had lost their sense of vision for him and for his cause. And after being in existence for probably about 30 years or so, life had become... Business as usual, they had lost the sparkle of their faith. Its passion and excitement had gone. And and this is a common problem with the people of God. Even in the Old Testament, uh, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 21, 18, these people um, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus repeats this in Matthew 15 with respect to the Pharisees and how they lived. Well, as I say, this this happens in marriage as well. Um, Time passes. Life gets busy and practical, and couples stop giving attention to the romance of their relationship. And like a deflated balloon, sometimes the fun disappears. And as in our marriages, so in our relationship with Jesus, especially for those of us who have been Christians for some years, it's easy for us 
to lose the sense of romance in that relationship, that first love that we read about here in Revelation. Maybe in our journey with Christ, things haven't gone as we had expected. Maybe we've encountered serious trial and disappointment. Maybe someone we've looked up to has failed us, or we have not received the recognition that we think we deserve. Or maybe the message to our hearts has always been about service and commitment and discipline and so on. And maybe it has been something just in our heads and not really in our hearts. And I think this is what the Lord looks for in our lives. This is what is behind those words in Deuteronomy chapter chapter 6 verse 4 where we read, love the Lord your God with, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And Jesus, in answer to the question of the Pharisees about what the greatest commandment in the law was, said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And it seems to me that the disciple, John, was especially interested in the emotional expression of love for Christ and for one another. John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved and the one who reclined next to Jesus or leaned against his breast at the Last Supper. And this was the kind of love Mary expressed as well when she sat at Jesus' feet and listened to him while her sister Martha served. He said Martha was troubled by many things, but that Mary had chosen what was better. And this is what she expressed when she rather carelessly, in the minds of some, poured a pint of uh, that very expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. This was Mary, the sister of Martha. As in marriage, so in our relationship with Jesus. I'm sure there are times when the romantic dimension of our lives is lost. Years go by, things happen, and the relationship gets a little bit tired and a little bit old. And our relationship with Christ in marriage or, or with Christ or in marriage is reduced to a kind of an academic relationship. For example, in our marriages, this might mean that we just go through the routine of our lives, work, eat, sleep, but no real affection, no fun. The dance of our marriage is gone. And in matters of faith, it might mean that we are biblical and theologically orthodox, but our love for Jesus really isn't there. Or maybe we're committed and go through our religious routines, but there is no real joy in our relationship with Christ. No fun, no delight, no sense of romance in our relationship with him. Yes, we believed, and there was a time we were enthused and involved, and, but now somehow we've been distracted. There's a bump in our spiritual journey, and we got discouraged. Now we're more taken up with perhaps business matters than we are with Jesus. And this also has application in our relationship with our brothers and sisters in the church. We work with each other, and we get along But here's the question. Do we really like each other? Or do we just enjoy, do we enjoy being together? Or do we come to church 
with a sense of duty and routine? Do we enjoy getting together, being hospitable to one another, opening our lives and our homes to one another? Do we find ways to have fun with one another? Is there a sense of romance in the life of the church? So as we conclude today, as you can see, I have uh, some important questions to ask. And the first one is, if you're married, how would you evaluate the quality of your marriage? Even though you've matured and expressions of affection may have changed a bit, perhaps of necessity, are you still in love like you were the first day you met? Are you experiencing that consummate love that you signed up for? So that's one thing. Uh, it's time. It's a good thing to, to think about once in a while. How are we doing in our marriage relationships? But secondly, how would you evaluate the quality of your love for Christ? Have you come to know him and put your faith and trust in him in the first place? And was there a time when you uh, remember falling in love with him? And if so, do you remember how excited you were when you first came to know him? Or is that a bit of a distant memory? I remember as a child, I was so, so excited about my faith in Christ. I remember receiving my first Bible and carrying it around everywhere. It's such a special thing. Uh, is it possible that over the years you become preoccupied with other things? That you're not as enthralled with him as you were at the beginning? And this is another question that I ask as well. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest, how would you rate your sense of love for your brothers and sisters in the church? Are you up there near the top or a little bit on the other side of the five? Are you excited to be part of this family? To join regularly in worship? How often do you open your home to others in the family of God here at the Tabor Evangelical Free Church. Do you like Christ's church as it exists here? I know there's a lot to be said, you know, for the sense of awe and reverence that was so characteristic of church worship in former times. And I know all about that because I grew up in churches where we used to hold a hymn book and sing out of the hymn book. I was talking to a young woman, oh, some years ago, just a few years ago, we were going to have a gathering where we were going to use our hymn books, and she, she had never heard of a hymn book. She said, what's that? And you notice that we don't use hymn books. And why, why is that? Well, something has changed, partly because uh, I think the younger generation wants to be more free in its expression of what worship is all about. And I think... A lot of songs these days are new and fresh and sometimes hard to follow for us who are maybe a little bit older because they come out of an expression of spontaneity and it's an expression of this is my an expression of my love for Jesus. I think that's great. I think there's a lot to be said for, of course, the old hymns because for many of us, they carried that expression very well. But a younger generation especially saying, I want more than just the right theology. I want to feel God's presence. I want to feel a sense of intimacy with him. 
And as I said, for many of us, the older hymns uh, do that just fine. But there are many others, especially in these days, who really like the opportunity for a fuller expression of their love for Christ. And you know what? I think this is a good thing. Because I think that's what God looks for. He wants us to enter into expressing love for Christ in a very personal way in our relationship with him. So as we conclude today, I want to encourage you to be a bit romantic, not only in your marriages, but also in your relationship with Christ. So I'd like you to stand with me and just spontaneously sing this song uh, that I have before you. And as we do on the second time through, the worship team will come up and they'll lead us in in another song along this line. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let me be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let's try those once more. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let me be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear.